Hello, and welcome to Free America. I am your host, Nick Yaya, and this is the Free America Podcast. Today is Sunday, August 23rd, and this is podcast number five, which means we are well on our way to 100 episodes. And in the world of television, that's when a show usually goes into syndication, which means big money for everybody involved. But for now, we rely upon you, our listeners, to support this podcast. So if you like what we bring you each week, please consider making a contribution to our show by going to patreon.com slash free America podcast. I also encourage you to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at free America podcast and on Twitter at free America. And now you can also watch our show live by visiting our brand new website at freeamericapodcast.com where you'll find our live stream every Sunday at 5 p.m. Pacific, as well as previous shows, news, articles, and other interesting and important videos. So before we bring on today's guest, I'd like to talk a little bit about free speech. Here at Free America, that's what we're all about, providing a platform through which people of, from all walks of life and all political affiliations can meet to discuss the issues of today used to be that people could enjoy that same benefit while interacting on platforms like Facebook and Twitter. But seemingly in recent months, not so much. More and more often, people with conservative viewpoints are being silenced on these platforms. Their voices muted by arbitrary bans from posting content or comments, citing a violation of community standards, which in many cases is so vague that it could be applied to a variety of innocuous language, all without any recourse for the individual concerned. Even more insidious is the shadow ban, wherein a person's posts and comments never appear on anybody else's feed and the person has no idea this is happening. In a recent video from Project Veritas, several Facebook employees admit that they use this method to silence people. Let's take a look at that video. Do you think if it was like a pro-Trump whistleblower that like they would protect oh, him at the same no, level? No, no, right? I think they're very biased with who they protect. At a certain extent, like like the bias. Have you seen the Twitter the Twitter shadow banning? So I wonder if this if you've seen anything oh, at Facebook. Shadow bans. Yeah. Facebook's notorious for it. And they say they don't, but yeah. it's clear that people's content don't come up because it's been defiltered off the queue. Yeah. Things. That's crazy. <laughs> they're doing something, man. They're just trying to pretend like they're not. Yeah. It's definitely being done. I, I don't know if there's any plans to, to make it more, like, to make it a true shadow ban. Like, you post these things, nobody can see your, like, you're not banned, but nobody can see your. Wow. Now, I myself was a recent victim of Facebook's arbitrary ban policy. I recently viewed a post that had a photo of a man in China dragging a dog behind his motorcycle. I commented that he was an animal. Well, Facebook blocked me from posting for 24 hours. On my birthday, no less. <laughs> but the offending photo of the animal cruelty was allowed to remain up. Do you see the hypocrisy here? Also, as many of you know, after my second episode of the Free America podcast aired, I was blocked from live streaming the show on Facebook. No notice was given. 
No reason was given. No opportunity for appeal was presented. Perhaps it was because I mentioned Donald Trump. This next video leads me to believe that might be the case. Let me run something by you. You know that uh, civic harassment queue that we've been in lately? Yeah. Is it just me or is it like all Republicans in there? It's all Republicans. But a lot of it comes off of Trump's page specific, uh, specifically. Yeah, because I see like a Bernie post and then I'll see like five Trump posts in a row. Yeah, it's it looks straight Republican related. Like, I love our president. Why, why are we getting this? Steve Grimmett is a content moderator for Facebook in Austin, Texas. Um, it's a very progressive company who's very anti-MAGA. I know that Facebook does have a, a Trump rule where they still allow him on the platform even though he says things that if anyone else said it. And that's, that's the fortunate thing is even if he does say something, if it gets repeated, we can at least get the average job. Mm -hmm. um, but it goes back to our discussion earlier, it's, it's hard when you've got the, the top person in the country, that's his M.O. Uh, but, you know, Facebook's done a lot better job of, of at least policing the mimickers and the, and the mockingbirds that come after Trump. No, honestly, like every time, like, like half the time when I read people for like, oh, I'm like, you should be on a watch list, dude. Yeah. Seriously. You know, Trump supporters like to throw around like Trump derangement syndrome yeah. as like, you know, liberals being crazy. I like think of it as that. Actually, you're the one that has Trump Ranger syndrome. Yeah. You're losing your goddamn mind as soon as because they're just like, oh, Trump 2020. Yeah. And it's like, that sounds a little more deranged to me when you end every argument than that. I don't like believe in pushing like the left agenda. Yeah, yeah. And that's what Facebook How? By allowing a lot of stuff that are very far left to be still on the platform. Like, for example, it, it, like racial stuff. Okay. What? You could call me white trash based on me being white, but I can't. But, if you say Asian trash, black trash, brown trash, we got to delete stuff like that. Right. So they, they, they're very, you know, they'll, they'll allow certain things, but not for others where you would think something could be. Um, and so that's just, you know, one example. But And they're very, like, politically, yeah. it's like you, you could say anything you want except kill for uh, someone on the right. Okay. But, but if, if it's someone on the left, then it's about their race. That's up, up in, like, you know, governmental things. You have to take that down for hate speech. So, wow. So what happened to free speech in America? Isn't it protected by the First Amendment? I mean, some would argue that Facebook and Twitter are private companies and have a right to set the rules as they see fit. I would argue that they have positioned themselves as a public forum, like a public square, where people meet to exchange ideas. They've even argued that they are not subject to FCC rules because they are not a publisher. Well, a recent Breitbart article clearly shows their self-contradiction when it comes to conservative voices. Reading, Facebook, in court filings, defending itself from a lawsuit filed by activist and congressional candidate Laura Loomer, has cited its First Amendment rights as a publisher, quote-unquote, contradicting public claims by the company that its social media service is a platform. The distinction between publisher and platform is central to the legal protections enjoyed by big tech companies and is frequently cited by Republican lawmakers in their criticism of Silicon Valley's political bias. 
Under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, tech platforms have immunity from lawsuits arising out of their decisions to host, or not to host, user-generated content. Unlike publishers, which are liable if their writers defame someone, a tech platform is not held liable for content created by its users. Yet Facebook appears to be jettisoning this categorization in its court filings, saying it has a First Amendment right as a publisher not to carry Loomer's content. Via Facebook's legal filings, under well-established law, neither Facebook nor any other publisher can be liable for failing to publish someone else's message. This contradicts public statements made in a Senate hearing last year by Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, who insisted that Facebook is a platform and not a publisher. From a Breitbart, from Breitbart News's article at the time, Senator Sullivan says, so which are you? Are you a tech company? Are you the world's largest publisher? Because I think that goes to a really important question on what form of regulation or government action in any we would take. Zuckerberg gave a mealy-mouthed response saying he, quote, views Facebook as a tech company because the primary thing we do is build technology and products, end quote. Sullivan then interjected, but you said you were responsible for your content, which makes you kind of a publisher, right? Zuckerberg's response, I agree that we're responsible for the content, but we don't produce the content. I think that when people ask us whether we're a media company or a publisher, my understanding of the heart of what they're getting at is, do we feel responsibility for the content that's on our platform? He then goes on to say, the answer to that, I think, is clearly yes. But I don't think that's what's incompatible with what's fundamentally at our core, being a technology company where the main thing we do is have engineers and build products, end quote. Loomer's case, which Facebook is attempting to have dismissed, claims that the company defamed her when it labeled her a quote-unquote dangerous individual to justify its ban of her account. And that's only the beginning, folks. Facebook has recently been meeting to discuss contingencies concerning the possibility of a contested election this November. According to BuzzFeed News, quote, in a recent staff meeting, Mr. Zuckerberg told employees that if political figures or commentators tried declaring victory in an election early, Facebook would consider adding a label to their posts, explaining that the results were not final. Of Mr. Trump, Mr. Zuckerberg said, the company was, quote, in unprecedented, unprecedented territory, with the president saying some of the things he's saying that I find quite troubling, end quote. And here's the scary part, folks. Quote, since then, this is Zuckerberg again, since then, executives have discussed the kill switch, or the, sorry, the article goes on to say this. Since then, executives have discussed the quote-unquote kill switch for political advertising, according to two employees, which would turn over its political ads after November 3rd, or turn off, rather, turn off its political ads after November 3rd if the election's outcome was not immediately clear or if Mr. Trump disputed the results. <laughs> a, a, a kill switch? If the president disputes the results? 
I mean, have, have we have we suddenly become communist China? Look, here's the problem with that. Imagine the following scenario. Let's say Joe Biden wins the popular vote, but the electoral vote is in question because millions of mail-in ballots have not been counted. Trump disputes the results, and for the next two months, both sides maintain that they've won. Whose voice do you think will be silenced? I think we already know the answer to that. Trump and any conservative or Republican that refutes the Democrats' claim to victory will be silenced. They're doing it right now, and you know damn well that they'll do it in November and beyond. This is the end of free speech in America. That is, if we don't do something about it. In the information section of this podcast, I will give you the tools to do that. I will post a link to the FCC's website where you can file a statement regarding Section 230 of the Communications Act of 1934 as it relates to social media companies like Facebook and Twitter. Now is the time to make your voice heard. You must make your voice heard before it is taken away for good by the tyranny of big tech and other corporate elite. God, I get so I get so upset about this. So I, I apologize, but it's it's infuriating, and it should be to anybody who's listening to this podcast. Wow. Okay. I'm gonna calm down now. That that being said, I would like to welcome today's guest, who I believe will possibly have a few words to say on the subject as it relates to Hollywood, because he is an actor and a filmmaker and also the author of several books. And he currently hosts a podcast called Finance Your Movie. Please join me in welcoming Scott DuPont. Hi, Scott. Hey, Nick, good to be here. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Great, thank you for being here. I'm, I'm so happy you could join us. Um, great to have you. So how are you today? How is, your, how's, how is the podcast going? Uh, it's great. Great. I did a little work on, uh, on it today. Just, just like you, there's a lot of research, a lot of behind the scenes stuff that goes on before you do, um, the show. And I was very, very impressed with your opening monologue, by the way, a lot of research you did there. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I, I take a lot of, take a lot of pride in that. I, I really want to make sure that people get the full picture about what's going on and not only that, but offer them a way to, um, have an impact on the issues of today, which is why I'm going to include that link to the FCC's website. So uh, I believe, yeah, that, that is important in giving people a, a voice, especially when it's being taken away from them in many instances. I, I don't, I don't know if you've ever experienced it. I mean, I'm sure not. You, you never, you, you're not really uh, the type of person to get too controversial with the the, the, the subjects that are that we deal with in today but what, what do you think about um you know you're you're very you're front and center in the in, you know in the, in the middle of the uh the movie business both in front of and behind the camera now you're helping other filmmakers to get funding you know, what's your take on on what's going on today in the movie business well i'm i'm not a uh, a big enough name so to speak where um I don't, I don't think it affects me going up for any roles or anything like that. And, um, 
certainly there's been a lot more diversity rather than older white guys that might have a slot slight punch, but I'm just joking. Um, and, and, you know, a little bit of diversity is good because our, our country certainly is changing. California is very, very brown. There's a lot of Latinos in this state, uh, a lot more than I thought. So I think that's good in the movies and television. Um, but what is changing and what concerns me a little bit is that um, the content. So if you're a filmmaker, you're less likely to get distribution or get a deal if you have a uh, Christian film or a faith-based film, or if you have anything that's leaning far right or, or a political agenda that's, uh, you know, pro-Republican. Um, we've even seen it where um, something that's almost too pro-American bringing in, you know, I, I, I don't know if anyone has tried to do a, uh, a civil war or a Confederate movie in the past couple of years, but that probably wouldn't fly now. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't necessarily know if that would be a good idea for anybody. Mm-hmm. But the other thing, so let, let's talk about the Confederate movies. Uh, like, I don't think it would be a good idea to, to make that kind of film right now. But Gone with the Wind, um, you know, there's a lot of historical movies. The, the whole John Wayne controversy. We're literally going back to our history and and... The beauty of television, classic television, and cinema history is that's a recorded segment of the way things used to be back then. That's a good um, point. And, and that's, that's a scary point if we start whitewashing our television and film history and taking a few uh, films off the shelf. I, I heard there was one one cable channel or one network or whatever that pulled um, kindergarten cop. Yes. And uh, yes. so you heard about that. Yes. And I'm yes. like, one of my friends actually was the creator of that. So he sent it to me and it's like, uh, are you kidding me? Just because it was very pro police or it showed the police, uh, you know, I, I don't even, yeah, things are just getting a little bit ridiculous. And, um, so because of that, what's really interesting is you're seeing two pretty serious attempts, and, and I hope they will both be successful, of Hollywood individuals that have left because they are finding a tough time being employed or a mm. tougher time being employed. One is Antonio Sabato, and he is starting his own studio. He's kicking it off with a, um, a Western film. And apparently he's got like 10 major stars that are also having a little bit of trouble getting work. People like um, Dean Kane, Antonio Sabato himself, Christy Swanson, um, Kevin Sorbo. Um, you know, there's a lot of people like John Voight. I don't know. James Woods. James Woods for sure. He probably is getting locked out of a few projects. Sure. Um, and then the other interesting studio that's kind of in the startup phase 
is Creado, C-R-E-A-D-O, Creado Studios. Mm-hmm. And uh, I believe they're at uh, Creado.media. They have hmm. a site up. So it'll be really interesting to see what these two studios do. And, and their whole, I've talked a little bit with the Creado folks and, and their vision is pretty simple. They want to have to provide an alternative to Netflix and some of the other mainstream uh, media companies so that if someone does have a faith-based film or a very pro-American film or, um, you know, maybe something that's got some political context, they don't, they don't want to block anybody. And they're not, they're not going to turn around and say, oh, we're not going to uh, let this type of movie or these type of people up. They're, they're not going to turn the other page. They just want to make it inclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I hope, I hope they're very successful. I, I think they really should be when they get going. Yeah. It looks like, yeah, they're, uh, they're up and running. Um, oh, there you go. There you go. Yeah. Creato studios is a free market driven studio and content platform for independent creators, filmmakers, musicians, and artists free from censorship and big studio control. Beautiful. A private company that believes in equal speech and privacy rights for all as protected by our U.S. Constitution. That's awesome. So thanks, thanks for pulling that up. Yeah, that's uh, that's really great that that I that that companies are doing this, I, that people are doing this and they're starting to operate outside of the traditional Hollywood system, which is becoming increasingly, like you said, biased and um, is blacklisting people. I mean, this is almost reminiscent of the McCarthy era. Yes, exactly. The McCarthy era where people who were branded as communists were deemed as dangerous and, and, and not uh, allowed to work in the, in the movie system. And now it's, uh, now it's the opposite. The, the people on the right are the ones that are being labeled as dangerous and, and not being allowed to participate in the creative process. And I think that's, that's not good for anybody. You know, when you just get a single side, one lopsided view of the world, it's, it's distorted and, yeah. and it doesn't allow people to look at the world through the eyes of someone else, which is an important part of understanding each other. You see, you know, communication is key to that. And if you can't look at like an event like the Civil War through the eyes of those who fought in the South, let's say, for instance, I mean, they've been vilified since the end of the war because they lost the war. But these were these were regular people that were, I guess, in, in their in their opinion, defending what they thought was right. Now, since then, it's been said that they were they were just defending slavery. But I believe it was something a little bit in more than that. Um, that, that they were defending their their sovereignty and their. Um, um, I don't know, their 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 financial independence from the northern states which were were being quite oppressive to them in that regard i mean i don't i don't want to go into too much of of history like that but my point was is that when you when you start amending history when you start taking out things and like you said uh, they're doing with these shows and movies you get this this weird one-sided view um or you start deleting movies like kindergarten cop or taking shows like cops off the air or even a children's show. Uh, I, I, I 
don't remember the name of it, but they had one of their main characters was a little puppy dog that was a cop. And they don't want kids to watch that anymore or to see police in a positive light. And that's dangerous. You know, there, there might there might be some bad cops out there, but the majority of them are good, honorable people who, by in my opinion, and I think a lot of other people would share this, do a very dangerous job. It takes some guts to put on a bulletproof vest each day and walk out into public knowing that there are people out there who want to kill you. I can't imagine that. Yeah, that, that's that's um, it's a really interesting dynamic, and, and and I can't really understand what someone of color might be going through. I got into a conversation on set about a year ago with a gentleman, and you know, and, and I pretended from day one. Listen, listen uh, it's and at that point two years ago somebody or a year or two ago someone else got shot and mm. we were talking about it and my point was you know if if i'm getting pulled over by a cop okay and all this stuff is going on we've seen it going on really all the way back to rodney king but before that there there are some bad cops there are some trigger happy cops mm -hmm. So given that situation, this is what I was trying to explain to the guy without pretending I understood his position at all. But I just said, hey, this is my viewpoint. If it's at night, I'm getting pulled over, okay, and the cop tells me to do something, like put my hands on the wheel, I'm going to put my hands on the wheel, okay? If the cop says, I want you to slowly reach down with your left hand to grab your wallet or whatever. I, I'm going to, I'm going to do every single thing that cop says. I'm not going to talk back. I'm not going to make a sudden move down there. And I told him that that's the problem mm -hmm. is a lot of the times it, you know, it wasn't like the cop went out on a hunting expedition, right? They're, they're, you know, like you said, they're putting their lives on the line now, now more than ever. And a lot of them don't even know if they're going to come home at night alive or in a body bag. Um, now, with that said, this gentleman told me story after story about how he got pulled over. And he always worried about if we were filming past 11 o'clock, what roads he was going to drive to get home. And this is like two years ago. Wow. And a couple times he, he got pulled over like in the past five years. And he said, the cops basically tossed his car. And I go, what does that mean? I've never heard that term. It means they put handcuffs on him. They put him on the sidewalk and they toss every single thing out of his car. Like they're looking for drugs or something like that. Mm -hmm. And they just drive off or, um, he did have his car towed a few times because he had like a little tiny joint underneath the seat or whatever. And he got released the next day. And I said, well, they, they, they reimburse you the, the tow, like the $275 towing fee. Right. At the it's like, no, 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 I'm out all that stuff. Hmm. So some really bad stuff going on, but, um, you know, I don't have an easy answer, but yeah, you, you can't, you can't vilify, the one tenth of one percent, if that bad cops. I, I I don't know a single person in the country who wasn't horrified 
would happen to George Floyd. Yeah, absolutely. And and there's a couple other cases over the past few years that people were all unified. That's that's mm. the sad part. We're all unified, and then when this this uh, whole movement starts up, you know, they're trying to vilify all the other cops. And my uh, my father, my stepmother, my little brother, my little sister live in New York. Well, my little brother, his wife, and his two kids they got out. They rented a place about 30 minutes outside of the city because it's getting really, really bad. The news is not reporting exactly what's going on in New York City, but the crime rate, homicides are up, in some cases, up to 300% from what they were last year. Yeah. And so my family and a lot of the people that I have friends that are in different parts of New York City, they all want more police less police, mm-hmm. not, not less police. Right. So to me uh, that, that doesn't now, yeah, there has to be reform. I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done, but it doesn't make sense, especially in the really poor sections of uh, Harlem or some of the seedier sections in Queens or the Bronx. Mm-hmm. They, you know, and there's a lot of people of color in those, there's there, they need, cops more than the people up on the Upper East Side in the Park Avenue buildings that have their own private doorman. Sure. I mean, that's that's where a lot of the crime occurs. Uh, the majority of uh, black victims are, are, are attacked by other black people. That, that's what the, I've always read. I don't know the statistics for Hispanic populations or other, but black on black crime accounts for something like 90% of, of black victims whether that's murder or, or rape or robbery or, or what, what have you. And you're right, by, by defunding the police or limiting the police presence in those areas, the very people that they're trying to help are going to be the ones who suffer the most. And you've seen it as like they did in, in New York. They, they got rid of an entire, the entire plainclothes police force, which was about 500 officers. And you saw when that happened. Crime on things like the the subways started going through the roof because that's where these guys would operate and uh, identify perpetrators and criminals. Yeah. And s- since they're not there, it's it's open season. The criminals know it, and they know they can get away with uh, all of these things now. So yeah, it's it's definitely not, and there's definitely not a a single one stop solution that that could help this. Now, a lot of people have been talking about going to to into these communities and providing more help and more resources. I think that's, that's a fantastic idea. Um, I think we need to get to the source of the problem and, and that's not just the police reaction to a person, but the people that are reacting to police. In a lot of these cases, when an unarmed suspect is shot by police, I think nine out of 10 of them, we're in where what what happened was was the person was fighting with the police, resisting arrest, tried to grab the officer's weapon. I know in Atlanta recently they grabbed the officer's taser and shot at the officers. So it's not like cops are out there just arbitrarily gunning down black people. That's that's just not the case. And I think these factors need to be taken into account when looking at these situations. So on the other hand, um, 
those those communities uh, do do need a lot of help. I mean, a lot of the problems come from these these single parent homes where there, there's not a father in the picture. And I've heard many black pundits and news commentators bring up this very subject, and that is black kids are more likely to end up committing crimes, doing drugs, skipping school, going to prison, you know, something like 30 times more likely to go to prison if they don't have a father figure in the home. I've always heard that for years, that yeah. statistic. Yeah, and it's and that I think is what we're talking about is the fundamental, the core of the problem. Because without this father figure, they turn to their their peers, which in many cases can be gangs, and yeah. they further erode their their morals and their sense of community, and 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 they imprint upon them, especially at these young ages, very dangerous ideals, which usually involved assault and murder and and robbery. Um, a lot of them carry guns, and I think, in part, because they want to defend themselves against their peers who are carrying guns. So, it, it really is a mess, and I'm I'm off to say that I'm I can only speak just from observation. Um, I'm I'm obviously not a black person, and and I mean I I know a lot of black people, and I know and I know what goes on in the communities, and I. I, I, it just feels awful to me. And I wish, I wish I could, I could do something more other than say that I'm a bad person because I'm white or something that, or that I have um, white privilege. I think labeling a whole race of people as having privilege because of the color of their skin is just as bad as labeling a whole race of people as black for being bad because of the color of their skin. Well, that that's yeah. reverse racism, right? Right, and it's a touchy issue. A touchy issue. It's not something that I I can easily bring up without seeming like a like a bigot for saying it. But I think the discussion needs to be had, and I I think people need to be a little more open to hearing what someone else is saying. And like you said, like I could never understand fully what it what it feels like to be a black person being pulled over by the police i would imagine it's terrifying um there was a guy at the at the march i was at yesterday a couple of guys were having a debate over this very subject and there was a hispanic guy saying man you know i get pulled every time i get pulled over by the cops you know it's because of the way i look when i'm with my white friend he only gets pulled over when i'm with him and the black guy said look man he says, I used to drive around, music bumping, hat on, you know, looking all gangster. And I would get pulled over all the time. He says, when I stopped doing that, they stopped pulling me over. So, I, you know, are they are they targeting individuals because of the, the way they look? I think in some cases, yes. If you're dressed like a gangbanger, cops are probably going to mess with you. Because you're, you're telegraphing to the world, hey, uh, I'm a dangerous person. And... Uh, you know, and to the cops, you're saying I'm a dangerous person. Therefore, the police doing their job to keep the community safe are going to interact with you. I, I just hope we get to a a point in time, maybe, I mean, like we can always, always wish, right? But after this election, somehow we stop referring to this black person or this Asian person or this mm -hmm. Latino. 
and start calling us all Americans. Hmm. I like that. I do like that. I mean, I why, think- why, why do we even need to put a label on anything one way or the other? And, and hmm. I see politicians especially doing this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's an, it's an easy way to divide people and, and, and that the easiest way to control people is by dividing them. They say, you know, the old saying divide and conquer. And I think that's a lot what's, of what's going on today in our society, especially from our government officials, be they on the right or the left. And that as long as people are divided, they're more easy to control. And thankfully, a lot of people are waking up to the fact, but it is a, it's, an, it's, an, it's definitely an uphill struggle to overcome that because we've been so imbued with it over time. That is difficult to not, as a white person or as a black person or Hispanic, to to identify someone else as being of another race. As I just as I just example when I just was talking about the two guys that were discussing things in the park yesterday, you know, Hispanic guy and a black guy. So, you know, but how how else am I to? Yeah, it, it, you needed to do that in context because right. we were talking about that specific in context. Issue. But I, I have, I you, you know, you're right. Okay, you're right. Because I have friends who are uh, of, of many colors, and I don't know. I don't say, oh, my black friend this or my Hispanic friend that. I just say my friend. Yeah. You know, it's it's not important that I put a label on the person. Not uh, not unless it needs to be discussed in context. It right. absolutely does not. You know, ninety percent of the time, it does not need to be mentioned the color of anyone's skin or the pigments. He's really really dark or. She's white as a ghost, you know? Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, man. Really, uh, really uh, some, some, some thorny issues. That's what, that's what, that's kind of why I started this, this podcast was to bring people on to discuss um, issues like this, you know, and to, to get, to get other opinions. And I, I like to hear opinions that don't always agree with, with, with mine. Um. So that being said, um, you know, I, I've never really asked what your political affiliation is. I know you've done a lot of like work. Some of your books have been on uh, one of your books was on electric cars. You've you've been a big advocate for for solar energy. So um, where do you where do you sit on the political spectrum? Are you are you conservative? Are you liberal? Are you, you know, you're kind of in the middle. What's 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 your what's your position? You know, the, these days I don't tell anyone. Because, <laughs> honestly, smart, if, if, if I tell if I tell one person, I'm going to be hated by 50 percent of the country. If I tell this person, I'm going to be hated uh-huh. by the other of the country. So, so here, okay. here's my position. I'm very liberal when it comes to energy policy, electric cars, renewables, solar energy, all that stuff, mm-hmm. um, and the environment as well. So I'm very left leaning in those. Okay. But I'm very conservative, right leaning in our economic and fiscal policy. Okay. So it's kind of an interesting dynamic. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I've hated a lot of things, or uh, hate's a strong word. I really did not like a lot of the early policies I saw out of this current administration. Mm hmm. Because and, and actually Fox News uh, at times used to demonize electric cars. 
Right. And I've been driving electric for 10 years. A lot of the people in my documentary and book have been driving electric cars 30 years. Wow. Jay Leno has a uh, 1902 Baker Electric. So the technology has been around over 100 years. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. So with that, with that said, and I, I understand it, the new generation of electric solar still relatively new. We're kind of on the second or third generation of solar. I, I would think in the 1970s, if you put solar in your roof, mm -hmm. you were like a really a pioneer. The yeah. panels today are so much cheaper, so much better, so much more effective. Um, so it's been a little discouraging on that side. Um, and same thing with some of the climate regulations. I was just aghast about getting out of the Paris Climate Accord. I thought that the United States took such a great leadership position. Um, and like I said, I'm very, very conservative. I'm an economics major before I even got into film. Um, and that's, that's I, I believe you need to start taking personal responsibility for your own personal checkbook, uh, your own household, and we should treat our country the same way. And I really do appreciate the fact that this administration, for the first time ever, has done some unpopular things, especially going to NATO mm -hmm. and going to the United Nations. And saying, you know, you guys have been ripping us off for years. Yeah. And then getting into the tariffs when, and I've, I heard this firsthand from some people that are very high up in the UN. I said, what do you think of the, the current president when he goes into these meetings and says this stuff? I said, well, we're a little shocked. He's a little direct, but they all respect him and they understand why he's doing it. He really is putting America is economic priorities first. Sure. And I, right. I, I think that just let, before you go on, uh, when you brought up the Paris climate accord, I, I believe that part of the reason behind that was to level the playing field in terms of, of China. I think it's a lot has to do with China and, and, and India in that agreement and India, right. They're not, they're not, um, part, of the accords as, as I understand it as the, well, there was nothing voluntary. So, so I always take a step back. I always listen to other people's point of view and that's why I'm thrilled to be on your show today. Cause you're such an open-minded person and you have some interesting things you talk about. So I really took a step back and I looked at the Paris accord and it really, really would have been a horrible agreement for the United States. It would, it would have been, like a wealth tax on our country because there were these, these timelines that had no enforcement guidelines for China and India, which are still building new coal plants, by the way, if you can believe that. And that's why um, 11, I believe 11 of the 20 most polluted cities in the world are in China because they're yeah. burning so much coal and they have, you know, hundreds of millions of fossil fuel burning uh, cars. They have diesel trucks with with no regulations. They don't have they don't have the equivalent of, of an EPA. So, taking a step back, it really would have been a bad thing for us to enter in that agreement. We've got to kind of 
go back with something that has some some more teeth and something that's not going to penalize or put a wealth tax hmm. on the United States because if we're not strong economically yeah we can't help all these other countries we've been known to help for you know over a hundred years that's a great we're, point we're always the people writing checks to right. this country that country e even when we don't get anything out of it yeah it's, um, it's well it's called it's soft diplomacy uh yeah and, and china's doing a lot of that right now in africa they're building out the african infrastructure with roads and railroads and building their the new silk road of all Correct. across asia and south asia through it to india and africa and uh, they've taken over some of that that role that the united states used to 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 do in terms of soft power around the world and that that can be a threat to us economically so it does come all it comes full circle if they're not if they're not playing by the same rules that we are and we're at a disadvantage then it it further it puts us at a further disadvantage down the road, um, and and uh, I think that's part of Trump's negotiating strategy, as he's shown in the past. It's it's kind of how he kind of how he does business is he'll he'll play hardball up front like he like he did with China, very very aggressive. Like and I don't I don't I, don't, I can't think of any other president in the past that's been more aggressive with China than he has, but it's gotten results. You know, he asked for the, you know, asked for the moon, asked for the stars and settles for the moon. And that's his style of negotiating. You know, you go big and then you kind of settle somewhere where you wanted to be to begin with. And a lot of people view it as 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 agitating China or being threatening to or taking a threatening posture towards China. And I'm OK with that because by their actions, they're threatening towards us. Financially. Um, you know, economically and as well as militarily now with what they're doing in the South China Sea. I think they're threatening their neighbors. I mean, they're acting. I watched a video the other day that compared Xi Jinping to to Hitler. Uh -oh. Well, you, I, I you can't say the H word because I might get banned for that again. I, I said something about the, the H man the other day and uh, they they uh, took down the post. And and I said, you can't even talk about a historical figure. Yeah, it's, it's history. That. It's history in context. But you look at, um, you know, talking about China, you talk to anyone that has tried to sell a U.S. made product in China. It, it's virtually impossible because of the tariffs and the taxes, the import duties they're going to put on that product versus stuff that comes flowing out of China that ends up in our 99 cent store. Right. Right. And um one of the things they're famous for, and, and hopefully the administration is looking into this, is the uh, IP, the forced IP transfer. So when um, General Motors wants to sell the uh, Buick uh, Regal, which I believe is, is one of the top selling cars in all of China now, in order for General Motors to open up that plant, they would have to, I think that the, uh, they have to form a partnership with the Chinese government. It's either 50 or 51% has to be owned by the um, Communist China Party. Yeah. And they own all of those patents. Now, of course, General Motors did it and Tesla did it. All these companies are doing it 
because they want to get into the largest automotive market in the world. But like if BMW wants to sell uh, cars over here, we don't force BMW to say, hey, the U.S. government's going to own half of BMW USA, and we don't take over all the patents and the access to all their technology that BMW is famous for. So things like that. And my only hope on the electric cars and the solar, um, there are a lot of incentives. I, I really started studying the electric car world big time about 12 years ago when I did my first documentary on the subject and I wrote my first book. And just like any new product, I'm a big uh, believer in incentives to introduce a product. Uh, a lot of the uh, incentives are starting to phase out now. And I, I think that's a good thing because um, you know we're at the tipping point. And the other thing that might change the administration's posture, and I actually have seen some signs of it. He got into a big uh, dispute with the chairwoman of General Motors saying, you know, you're not going to use this money for electric cars. And and then he, he flew up to uh, Detroit. That, Trump? Is that Trump? And, yeah, uh, okay. Trump. And I, I believe it's Mary Barra, I believe, is the, uh, the General Motors chairwoman, chairman. And um, when Trump got into the numbers and stuff, he saw, wow, that electric is the future. And they were going to have to build some of these electric cars in – um, Mexico. So after their meeting, they worked out a deal where these new Chevy bolts and some of the other new Chevy all electric cars are going to be, uh, made in Detroit area plants and the supply chain, including the, a lot of the battery, uh, parts is going to be us made. So, mm. um, I think we might see a shift there. It all comes down to to Trump about the numbers. That that's his obsession. Um, sure. You know, he's business man. and economics right. first. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking about uh, green technology and, and renewable, and, and this on the subject of renewable energy, um, we've been seeing some issues out here in California recently with the heat wave, and that the state is is uh, reliant uh, in large part on renewable energy for its, its electricity, and then of course, importing energy or electricity from other states. And what we've seen is with, especially with wind and solar, is that if the wind dies down or when the sun goes down, we, we, are, we are operating at a deficit in terms of our, our, our energy needs. And if we can't get enough energy from any one of our surrounding states of, as suppliers, then we get blackouts. So. Do, as someone who follows this very closely, is there any technology on the horizon that's going to allow for the storage of energy over the overnight? Now, in like in say like batteries, kind of like a you know Tesla power walls or something like that. Have you have you heard of anything like that that's that's on on slated on slated to come out soon? Yeah, yeah. So I think I think we're on the tipping point there. If if this if this discussion had it had come up two or three years from now with all the renewable energy that California has, and I applaud um, California taking the lead, it wouldn't be an issue because the U.S. Army, uh, through funding from the Department of Energy about eight years ago, 10 years ago, they did this study 
called V2G. It's called Vehicle to Grid. So they're slowly electrifying a lot of the great big army trucks that are overseas and in, in the National Guard because those things are beasts. I mean, they eat, eat a lot of fuel and not all of them have to run 500 miles a day. A lot of times they're transporting goods or troops short distances. So they're a perfect mm -hmm. fit for electric. So vehicle to grid technology, you've got two things happening. More and more solar installations uh, the past year have gotten a Tesla battery wall or the equivalent of some sort of battery backup. That's fairly new. Um, I was involved with the very first residence in the east, eastern side of the United States back in, I think it was in 2015 or 2016, and I, I helped launch that where we had two Tesla battery walls, 14 kilowatt solar array on this massive house in Florida, which gets a lot of heat, sunshine, um, and even an all glass house, the whole house and all three electric cars were totally off the grid, meaning there was a net zero usage, which, which is phenomenal. Wow. So what's, what's going on, and to answer your question, with more and more of the houses now having these batteries, okay, and we're slowly, there's, there's a ramp up cycle. It's gonna be two or three years before it really has a meaningful impact. But the, with the vehicle to grid technology and more and more electric cars, you're able to, if you have this software, um, and let's just say the power goes out, which it is in certain places in Northern California right now, and a lot of people, I don't know the percentage, in Northern California around Silicon Valley have Teslas or BMW or Mercedes electric car, whatever, there's a lot of electric cars in that part of the country. With vehicle to grid technology, they're probably not going to be driving their car to work or or to a fire through a fire. Their cars are all sitting in their these garages. So in effect, each one of those cars has a Tesla battery wall or the equivalent of a Tesla battery wall. And you mm -hmm. plug it in and it starts pulling that electricity out of the car. So that's that's where your energy is being stored. So that that is really really exciting. Hmm. Um, now the one thing that um, and and George W. Bush did this. I think Obama saw the wiseness of this. He you know I I I, I praise. I disagree with a lot of Obama's policies, but I do praise the fact that he really brought up a lot of attention to renewables, and you got to start somewhere. I think the one thing that this administration is doing is he, they've been massively trying to shift away from coal, even though he's telling the coal miners he wants to protect their jobs. Uh -huh. They really are long term trying to get away from dirty coal, trying to get away from the more polluting, more expensive fossil fuels going towards natural gas. Yeah which we have an abundance of. It's very clean burning compared to the other fossil fuels. Now there's a whole fracking issue. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think long-term we need to switch to all renewables, but I think there is a smart way to do it without hurting our economy. And that, that's the one thing I, I, I have, it hasn't been popular when I get in discussions 
I get I get demonized for this. But one of the things I do appreciate this this administration doing is they want to make changes without putting a huge tax on our country or without stalling our economy. And if you asked me two years ago or three and a half years ago, I should say, who was going to win the election? I told everyone, well, if people think that Trump can do a better job with the economy, they're going to pull that switch in the voting booth. If people think Hillary Trump can do a better job with the economy, they're going to flip that switch. Mm-hmm. So if you ask me in two months who's going to win, it's it's really up in the air right now because mm-hmm. when, when a lot of people do their ballots or they go in the voting booth, they really are selfish at the end of the day. They care about themselves, their family's finances, and their family's well-being. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. And that's, that's one thing that I think um, – the administration has done a good job before COVID is, you know, from every economic indicator that I looked at and I studied economics in school, Mm. the economy was, was just off the charts. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it was. So, so I will give the administration for uh, good marks for doing that. For sure. Um, We saw, unemployment at record lows, black unemployment at record lows. Uh, we've seen um, just all kinds of, of gains in terms of jobs coming back to the United States, manufacturing jobs, steel jobs, things that had been shipped overseas that haven't been in this country for decades. And this is a result of, of both um, Democrat and Republican policies. I think that they do what's best for those that finance their campaigns. And these just happen to be corporations. And they've set the American people aside as 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 not being important when forgetting that that they, they only serve at at our at our pleasure. OK, we we get, have given them the consent to be governed. Uh, we've we've given them our consent to be governed and we can withdraw that. And I think Trump has stepped in and said, wait a minute, you're not doing right by the American people. You're doing right for yourselves and for your, your cronies. And that's the one thing that the message that I've tried to get across to a lot of people is that Trump, first off, isn't a politician. And that's what makes him so dangerous to other politicians, because he's here to serve the American people first. All right. And the politicians don't like that. He doesn't play their the, the typical game. That's why he's not liked by both Democrats and Republicans. You see these, you know, the Lincoln Project and these guys coming out who are against Trump and trying to slam Trump is because he's upsetting the apple cart in many ways. And, and, and as he puts it, draining the swamp of the corruption that's been in D.C. Now, uh, on the subject of the president, um, I'd like to ask you your your take on this. I mean, he's he's been called, you know, racist, anti-Semitic, white supremacist. And I remember you in discussions we've had previously, you said you you have firsthand knowledge that that you know and can prove that Trump is not a racist. Is is that correct? Can you share with us a little bit more about that? Yeah. Now, there's certain things I, I won't defend the president on. I mean, I um just appalled by some of his late night tweets at three in the morning and 
you know, some of the things he does, I, I do like his economic policies, but it does, it does bother me. And, and this is, this is a problem on both sides, you know, people on the left calling Trump a racist and then people are calling Joe Biden a racist. I don't think it does either side any good to keep throwing that race card at each other. But here, here's where it does bother me when people call Trump a racist. He can be called a lot of things, okay? And I, I won't stick up for him on, on certain issues. But I know for a fact that he can't be racist when you look at somebody's lifelong history. So I was living down in South Florida in the late 70s and the 80s. And Mar-a-Lago, just a qu quick history, and this, this gets right to the point why I know he's not a racist. Mar-a-Lago was just by far the biggest property in Palm Beach County. It literally goes all the way from the ocean, the beach side, all the way across Palm Beach Island to the Intracoastal Waterway. I mean, it's just a magnificent property. It was owned by, built by uh, Marjorie uh, Majorweather Post, uh, heir to the, uh, the Post Foundation, uh, serial fortune. She married E.F. Hutton. Mm -hmm. And it got to the point where I guess after they, uh, she died, they couldn't sell it because no one had enough money to buy this massive property. So it ended up being taken over by the, by the government and they used it as a presidential retreat. I think JFK might have gone there. And then the government decided it was too expensive for them to maintain. So it got to the point where it, it came up for sale and Trump in his one of his shrewd negotiations, he bought the property for a really good price. And his sales pitch was, Hey, I can take this off the hands of the government. There won't be any upkeep. Um, you'll be able to start collecting property tax from me and I'm going to maintain the integrity of it. And immediately when he, and I believe he acquired the property in 1985, and immediately people in P Palm Beach back in the day, in the 70s and 80s, was a very, very, once you go over the bridge, bridges to the island, it's a very close-knit secular community. And I, I hope I don't get banned for saying this, but this is part of history. Back in the day, most of the major private clubs on Palm Beach Island would not allow Jewish people, would not allow blacks. Just a fact. And I was a little kid. I'm driving back and forth to uh, this boarding school from I, I lived on Jupiter Island, which is the island north of Palm Beach. And my mom would drive me down to this boarding school. I went to St. Andrews, an Episcopalian school down in Boca Raton, which ironically had a lot of Jews. And, you know, it was never a problem with me or my family. But there was this pretty bad stigma at that time against Jewish people. They, they, they weren't part of the elite society. Of course, blacks and Latinos were never allowed in these clubs. So one of the thing, things Trump, he got blocked every single time he tried to do something. He got blocked by the city of Palm Beach or these group, these um these genteel groups within the country clubs would throw lawsuits at him. And the 
biggest, biggest thing I remember reading in the Palm Beach Post as a little kid, as a teenager, was that Trump was having all these legal battles and he came up with the solution because Palm Beach wouldn't let him divide Mar-a-Lago and he stuck to his word. The, the ultimate thing he wanted to do was maintain the beauty of this property intact to preserve history. So he had this idea of this very, very upscale private club. I think at the time, back in the day, it was something like $100,000 to join. And in the bylaws of the club, he was very specific. And he's been this way his whole life, hiring women for his Trump construction organization, hiring Latinos, hiring African-Americans. So he, in the bylaws, he said there will be no discrimination of race, color, religion, or creed. Hmm. And the, the town of Palm Beach went wild. They saw this as pulling down the whole society of this tiny little private secular island. They didn't want blacks driving by their country clubs going into this country club. They didn't want Latinos going there. Um, they didn't want Jewish people. So wow. here's a guy in the 80s. And this, this, I think all these legal things didn't get resolved till 1995. So this was a 10-year legal battle where he could, have, he could have easily caved. But he spent millions and millions of dollars, even when he was financially strapped. You remember, he went through a tough time period there. Yeah. But he said, no, this is too important to me and society that we create a country club in Palm Beach of all places that's going to be open to everyone. And to this day, there are black, there are Latino, there are Jewish, there are probably some Muslim, um, Islamic um, members at the Mar-a-Lago club if they <laughs> have the money to join. So wow. that, that tells me he couldn't possibly be racist if he fought for years and years and years sticking to his core beliefs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, I think that pretty much uh, puts the nail in the coffin of that, of that argument. I mean, it's so easy to label him as such, uh, at least it, from the left and the, the mainstream media, because of some of the tweets that he puts out. Um, they're very abrasive. And he's that's just his way of speaking is what I've come to learn. He doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't put any cinnamon and sugar on it, as one of my guests said. Um, and he, I think, all too often gets gets this, this bad reputation because of that. And, and it's the same thing on uh, immigration. I, yeah, I, I, I don't think that. I don't think I've ever heard him say. We, we want to ban all immigrants and, you know, right. we want to discriminate against anyone. But I think, I mean, everything I've heard him say is actually very similar to what my close friends that are newly, uh, uh, newly become U.S. citizens. So, for example, my girlfriend just became a U.S. citizen about two or three months ago, it was the, the most proud, one of the most proud days of her entire life. Her, her brother and her sister came over from El Salvador. They spent tens of thousands of dollars 
in legal fees. They waited years and years and years. They love other immigrants. Mm. They're, they're happy to be here. They, in fact, yeah, I, I don't want to get into too much personal stuff, but I, I really respect their work, work ethic. And they don't want to see other people come over the border illegally and drain their tax dollars I, or, I think, or yeah. not have any consequences to what, as far as I'm concerned, they're, they're breaking the law. Well, that's one of the big issues here in California is you're talking about tax tax money. Um, according to one report that I read that illegal immigrants contribute about $2.1 billion to the California economy. On the other hand, they draw over uh, $20 billion in goods or services from the California economy. So it's they, they, they're taking 10 times as much as they put in. And that burden is put upon the, the taxpayers of California who every election cycle seems that we have a new tax that's being placed upon us, whether it's a gas tax or this upcoming election is going to be a property tax, the repeal of Prop 13 over commercial properties and that we're not talking about just like office buildings you're talking about apartment buildings and what's going to happen with that is that in turn is going to raise rents on all these apartment buildings and further put people at a financial disadvantage so sales tax almost 10 percent here in la right and another recent 28 rent rise and 28 cents of gas tax and it's becoming increasingly difficult to live in this state. And there has to come a point at which we say, look, we we want to help people who need help. OK, I, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying don't educate the kids. I'm not saying don't help people when they you know need help at the hospital for health reasons. OK, that would be inhumane and and uneducated, uneducated children. You know what? It, what do kids do when they don't have an education? Well, they turn to crime, not in every case, but. You know, they, they, they're more, working, we're more to likely to turn to crime. So that's not good for society at large. But there has to be another solution. Do you, do you have any any thoughts on uh, an, an, any type of immigration solution, something that, that might benefit both people emigrating here and also the people of the United States who are either here born naturally, uh, naturally uh, uh naturalized citizens or, or people who were naturalized after, after they came here. Any thoughts on that? I mean, I, I know this isn't a popular topic and I'll, I'll probably get dirty looks from my neighbors if they see this, but I, I think we need to enforce the current laws that are on the books because if we, if we don't, we're going to have more and more of these caravans coming up and you know, there's there's a conspiracy theory to these caravans like, oh, you know, they were organized and, uh, you know, they, they were coming up because they heard that Trump was going to build a wall and close the border. Well, I believe some of that was very probable. If, if you're getting ready to to finally enforce the law and simply ask who is coming into this country and you might change some of the laws, like if you step across the border, your kid or your unborn kid is is automatically a U.S. citizen. I mean, that that doesn't happen in a lot of countries. No. So I think we need to just really 
define what the laws are and enforce them and take care. I mean, we have 60,000 plus, it's probably closer to 70,000 now homeless just in LA. Yeah. I think we need to take care of some of our people first. In terms of education, I have a big heart. I believe in education, but I don't necessarily think it's fair to give someone here that's illegally or legally a free education because number one, what happens to all the people like myself, I chose to go to college. I knew there was going to be a huge debt, especially with my graduate school that I'm still paying student loans and I will for years and years and years. Mm -hmm. It's not really fair to a lot of us that still have student loans. We're going to be paying for 10, 20 more years. Yeah. If, if this new kid just goes to school scot-free. Yeah. I, it just, it just, the other thing about education. You're talking about always, higher education, not, not like. The, yeah, I'm talking about higher education. Okay. Okay. I thought you were talking about. Like um, no, no, I'm talking about uh, junior college, college, master's degrees, doctorates. Copy that. I, okay. I don't think any of that education should be free for two reasons. Number one, if you're not paying for it, you don't appreciate it as much. Mm -hmm. Okay. You. You pay, you pay attention. That's that's my favorite saying. You pay money, you're going to pay attention. Hmm. If you're not paying, you're not going to pay attention about your education. Sure. The second thing is, we're in this we're in this new economy with automated, uh, with AI, with robots, with self driving cars. With every time you go to a Walmart or a Target, you see the um, automatic uh, cashiers. You see the parking lots, the bridges. They don't have human beings anymore. Mm -hmm. we're, we're at this point where I don't think everybody needs to get a four-year college education to have an advantage. I think it would be smarter. And, and, and this is for people that are paying for their own education as well. Um. I think you really, and I'm not, I'm not anti-college at all. I, I was lucky enough to go to college. I was lucky enough to get a loan to get my master's degree. Um, but I think if you're paying for college or if the government's paying for college, we need to look. Does, do the same number of people need to go get a liberal arts four-year degree? I think it might be smarter with some people to, to take a one-year degree and really zero in on IT mm -hmm. or robotics or cybersecurity or uh, you know di different specialized skills or even even plumbing, even mm -hmm. uh, electricians, sure. very specialized technical schools that can be done in one or two years, mm -hmm. so that they have a better chance of getting a job. Because I, I know a lot of kids that are getting out of, of school with a $200,000 debt. Wow. Can you imagine? No. It's, if, you're, if you go to a private school, it's 50 to 70 grand a year. Wow. So I know personally a few kids that have gotten out with $200,000 in debt, and they can't get a job that matches up with their major. Yeah. That that doesn't make a, a lot of sense. It's um, that's one of the big problems I think with with the 
the education pipeline, education to employment pipeline today is that a lot of what's being taught isn't, isn't useful in the workplace or in getting a job. You know, a lot of people can't, like you said, match their education to a, a career where they could develop a skill set based on that education that they've got. And what you're saying is the smart move would be to focus on education that's more it's it's more clearly defined. And you're right. That's probably a very good way to get people into the workforce a lot, a lot quicker and get them the ability to pay off those loans. I myself also carry a pretty large debt of student loans. Uh, don't nef- definitely nowhere near $200,000, but it's, um, it's only rising. The, the, the percentage rate, I think the APR I have on is like 7%. So every 10 years, that doubles. So I'm, I'm at about uh, $35,000 right now that I, that I still owe. And um, I've not been able to, like many of these people, take what I've learned and use it to get a job in the field that I, that I studied because it was, it was very broad. So that's definitely an issue that, that needs to be addressed. And I think people really need to be given, even at the high school level, more tools for navigating the world. Like you're talking about, like you studied economics. And I think a lot of people don't have a basic understanding about how to manage their their own economic biosphere, atmosphere, rather. Uh, the ability it's, to it's manage a budget. Right. The ability to manage can, can a budget. You, can you imagine if they taught in-depth personal finance classes starting in fifth grade? Mm-hmm. All, all of junior, uh, I guess all of middle school or junior high school, they really taught the power of compound interest. Mm-hmm. Compound and they interest showed all these graphs where if a kid just started putting, you know, a dollar a month away, a tiny, tiny amount, and then just kept putting it in. I mean, it's, it's almost like a magic formula. They don't teach that. They don't teach enough personal economics, personal finance. It's almost the opposite. They don't teach that. And then all the high schools and colleges right across the school, as soon as you walk out the gates to the high school, all the credit card companies are set up there with banners. Yeah. Debt. So becoming... the high school kids and the college kids get get multiple credit cards. And and instantly go into debt and become slaves to debt, really, for the rest of their lives rather than being financially yeah, secure yeah, and financially free. That's what we were discussing in the previous uh, podcast, my guest, Ronald Farnham, whom you also know yeah, you have, is a mutual friend of ours. He's a sharp and, guy. And yeah, Ronald has really, really enlightened me as to the the ways in which to become financially free. Uh, they're, they're a little, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, unorthodox. But, but, but definitely it sheds a light on how these types of things work. And really, the, the, the type of, of financial slavery that's been imposed upon people without, without their knowledge. And you just pointed out a very uh, 
you know, one of the biggest problems, which is, is, is credit and credit card debt. And I, I at once, at one point I had a credit card with bank of America and they were charging me 24.99% interest. It goes up to 29.9. That's that's outrageous. Yeah. 25%. I mean, that's like that, that, that debt doubles, um, or even let's say 29%. You know, that debt doubles like every two year to one and a half years or something. Like it, that's that, or, or you're just stuck paying the minimum for, you know, 10, 20 forever. years. And you never get rid of any of the debt. You just keep paying and paying and paying and paying. The $5,000 debt that I had with them would have taken me, I think it was something like 70 years to pay off. 70 years to pay off 5,000 and would have, and would have garnered them over the process of that, something like $300,000. It would have cost me $300,000 to borrow 5,000. Now, does that make any sense? Should anybody be subject to that type of financial, you know, slavery, really? Uh, You're, you, you, you're working a job just to pay these big banks, all this money. Uh, And rather we could teach kids how to, how to, properly use credit to leverage yourself out of debt and to acquire assets that appreciate like, like real estate rather than cars. Uh, So, and, and, and finding ways to invest money smartly in things like the stock market or in individual securities or in other financial instruments that yield uh, profit as opposed to you know, money as a, as a tool to make more money as opposed to money being this oppressive thing or debt being this oppressive thing. That's a lot of what's wrong with our country today. And you're right. Something that should be taught in, in early, the earlier uh, schools, you know, middle school and so forth. And, and it's exciting for me to see, I, I, I try to always further my education all the time, whether I uh, have online coaches that I pay for, I go to live events like JT Fox's mega success. He's the world's number one wealth coach, Tony Robbins, uh, business mastery type of events. Um, And it's exciting when I go to some of these events to see these young kids, like 12, 13, 14 years old, that their parents bring with them. Really? And then a couple of years later, you see these 16 year old millionaires. Really? Because they're learning the tools and the strategies, and they also have a complete and, – and, and these kids, I know at least a half a dozen kids. In fact, one of my coaches, Caleb Maddox, I hired him as a YouTube coach. He's got a whole training program about YouTube automation. He hit his first million by the time he was 16 years old. One of his companies alone right now is worth $30 million, and I think he's 17 or 18. So – not only do they learn the tools and the strategies from the world's best financial people, but they also being in a different peer group other than their high school or middle school peers, they have completely different mindsets and beliefs and that's why they're so successful. So it's really exciting to see these shifts when people are educated the right way at a young age. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the best, that's the best time to, to shape someone's um, perception of money and how money works is at a young age. You know, that's when, when the mind is still developing and, and it is more impressionable and, and more easily absorbs a lot of these, these, 
these concepts and ideas. Uh, that's that's probably the, the the best time to do that sort of thing. So, wow, that's that's really fantastic. I I, I can't imagine the kids a multi multi millionaire. Oh, the the, these are these are these are many many different kids. And whenever I see uh, at mega success, I saw a couple families there, and I I would you know I've met I've met some great contacts over the years. But when I first started seeing these guys, I would go up to the father or the mother and I would just thank them. I said, you know, you know, I'd say, kids, are, are you bored? And they're like 10, 11, 12 year old kids. Like, no, no. God, that last speaker was amazing. So the <laughs> kids are into it. But I made sure I thanked the father and the mother. I, I only wish I mean, my parents did a great job. I will never say anything about my parents. I was blessed. But what a gift that these parents have bringing their kids along to these inspirational financial strategy events. Smart. Like really business smart. mastery or uh, mega success or mega sure. partnering. Sure. Yeah, I know. I, uh, I recently uh, listened to an, an audio book by a guy named T Harv Ecker. Uh, it's called the millionaire mindset. I'm not sure. If oh yeah. Heard. Yeah. I've read the book. Yeah. I thought the name was familiar. And it's, it's, it's one of the biggest takeaways that I got from that book was in, in the form of, of money management and, and how to properly utilize your income by dividing it into certain sections. So you take 50% of your income and that's for your expenses, your, you know, your rent, your food, car payments, so forth. You take that other 50%, you divide it up into five different section so one is for long-term investment like uh, you know retirement one is uh or, or, excuse me one is long-term savings the other one is investment the other is for uh, charity donations so this is 10 percent, 10 percent, 10 percent to each of those then 10 percent rainy day emergency fund for uh right savings savings investment charity uh, the other is for for fun to have a good time. Yeah, with, fun. Yeah, yeah. That I never that I never leisure did fun. anything with, right? And so by by utilizing just that simple principle, I've been able to set aside um, a good chunk of money, about ten thousand uh, dollars, in just the past I don't know six months. Good uh, for you. Even while being on unemployment. Uh, that's, that's been uh, normally if I would have had unemployment money, uh, I, you know, and I hadn't managed it properly, I'd probably still be broke. But by utilizing that process, I've been able to save enough money to where, um, because unemployment's run out, I'm, I'm getting like 50 something dollars a week right now. So, uh, 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 and I'm hoping my, that our industry will come back soon because, um, I don't know what I'm going to do. I might have to to switch things up entirely and get out of uh, the entertainment business and get out of the uh, the uh, hospitality industry and look at a completely different career because I don't know if and when those things are going to come back. Which is a it's kind of challenging times for yeah. a lot of people. Yeah, it makes me sad. But because I've been utilizing this 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 money management process. I've been able to give myself some financial security so that I can, I do have the time to transition to 
another industry. And I do have the means to do it without having to resort to other means to, to feed myself and to live. Well, you're doing a great show here. Ho hopefully you can keep building your audience and growing it and growing it and get some sponsors. And, uh, you know, that's, that's how a lot of shows start. Yeah, thank you. Uh, that's that's the hope here, and I mean, currently we're you know we're really financed by uh, people's generosity and their charity. I just got uh, another Patreon supporter the other day, which was very nice. Uh, person contributed or uh, to ten dollars a month. So that's great. That's a, that's a start. So we're off and running, and we're off to the races. And yeah, hopefully we will be able to get in some sponsors here soon. A good friend of mine also does a podcast and. And he's been building up quite a following and they already, they have sponsors now and, and they're, they're, they're making some, uh, know, some decent money. They're not walking away like with Joe Rogan type money from doing a podcast. You got to start somewhere, but you got to start somewhere. So, yeah. well, great. Well, we're coming to the end here, Scott. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? Any, any other, um, tidbits of, of wisdom or information or something you'd like to leave our audience with about perhaps how to find out more about you and what you do? Well, if if anyone listening has a uh, an interest, not necessarily in just making films, but if you're putting some videos up on TikTok or Instagram TV, Facebook Watch, YouTube Vimeo, uh, it seems like almost everyone has a 4K camera now. So almost everyone is a storyteller or a filmmaker. So if you ever get to that point where you want to raise a little bit of money to go from your, you know, 10 minute YouTube video to uh, a real documentary film and raise a little bit of money for that, or your first real film, um, check out finance your movie. Um, I've been in the business almost 25 years. A uh, little over 20 years in terms of producing and raising money for my own films. And I, I made a lot of mistakes. I learned a lot along the way. And that's the whole point of the podcast is I want to share some of the mistakes I made and what I learned. I've had some incredible coaches, including JT Fox, who's a number one world's wealth coach. So a uh, lot of great, there it is right there. A lot of great uh, information a lot of it I'm just sharing from people that are smarter, wiser, and they've done a lot more movies than I have. But I've learned a lot during my journey, and that's the whole point is sharing this with the next generation of filmmakers. Or if anyone just one day decides you know, they want to make their own film, uh, you can't just say, oh, yeah, you know, give me $50,000 without disclosing it's very high risk. So mm -hmm. the whole point is to show how you can – you know, talk to a potential investor, disclose the risk and take some safeguards some precautions so that you can, in most cases, get your money to tell your own story. Great. That looks fantastic. Well, it looks like you have quite a few uh, episodes in there and they don't look to be too long. It looks like most of them are, you know, anywhere between 10 to maybe 20 minutes max um so i think those are good little yeah. tidbits uh, where people can pick up some information quickly and it looks like you've got quite a few guests on there so i'm sure that like you said as industry professionals they bring a lot to the table in terms of of wisdom and knowledge on the subject so great man well i'm um, i'm glad you shared that with us and definitely i'm gonna put more information on that on our website as well as in the 
information section on this podcast as to how you can find out more about Scott's podcast. So great, Scott. Well, thank you so much for uh, for joining us. And thank it's been, you. It's been really it's been really fun speaking with you, and I, I really love to hear uh, your your thoughts on uh, all these different subjects that we talk about today. So uh, perhaps you can come back and join us again sometime. I'd look forward to that. That would be and great a after the election, whichever way that goes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That'll be good. Uh, yeah. uh, that will be awesome to hear, hear your thoughts on that whole thing. So uh, again, good talking to you, Scott. We'll see you soon. All right. Thanks again, Nick. Goodbye. Great. Wow. That was a lot of fun. Uh, I really enjoy talking to Scott. I've known Scott for many years and he's just also, always just, he's such an awesome guy. He's so well-informed and always working on something really cool. As I mentioned, he's written several books. Um, you can find all of his books on Amazon. Just type in his name, Scott DuPont, and they will pop up. You can also follow him on Facebook at Finance Your Movie and listen to his podcast, as we mentioned, at MovieFinanceGuy.com or even on Spotify. And even, like I said, even if you're not looking to finance a movie right now, if you're working at, on, a, on a YouTube channel or TikTok videos, um, I still recommend checking them out. As I mentioned, the shows are really brief, usually 10 to 15 minutes long, some 20 minutes long with industry professionals that are always very interesting and informative. So once again, thank you for tuning in to the Free America podcast. And if you are digging what we are doing, throw us a bone over at patreon.com slash free America podcast. You can also find this episode and others wherever you listen to podcasts, such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and others. So for now and the foreseeable future, I'm Nick Yaya. And remember, you don't have to tune out the news completely, but for the love of God, turn off CNN. Good night, everybody.